Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day. Welcome to episode 45 of the Howie Games. Hope you have all had a wonderful, wonderful week. We've had a great week, haven't we, Pingy? My word, we have, Pickle. We've been on fire. It wasn't really about us, Penguin. It's always about us, Pickle. But Mum had her 40th, and you announced a big surprise at the party, Pickle. And just before some speech, is that good a big surprise to share with all of you? Mummy and Daddy are getting married! (laughs) I don't know what surprised people more, Big Penguin. That Mummy and Daddy got married, or how many pieces of birthday cake you had. Four isn't that many, Pickle. Pengi. Okay, five. Pengi. Six. Are you sure that was it? Okay, I had seven pieces, Pickle. (laughs) It blew my mind. It nearly blew your bottom off, Penguin. (laughs) Thank you, guys. So, to this week's episode, featuring a man I've admired enormously for a long time, ever since sitting down in front of the telly on the couch and watching him come from two sets down against Mikhail Pernfors to win the Davis Cup way back in 1986... Pat Cash. Pat Cash in five sets over Michael Turnfors as Neil Fraser comes up to congratulate him. What a fantastic effort by this young man. The very next year, Pat won Wimbledon before climbing into the stands to celebrate, creating an iconic Australian sporting moment and, along the way, inspiring countless people with his flair, attitude and win-at-all-costs approach. Pat Cash is a fascinating man. He's passionate, articulate, warm, funny and still, after all these years, in love with the game of tennis and his kids and his grandkids. Pat Cash, a grandfather. Wow. The journey hasn't always been easy for Pat. In this episode, he talks openly about the tough times, injuries, drugs, mental health problems, relationships and the crushing pressure he felt after being labelled the next big thing. He also gets very emotional when discussing the plight of Indigenous Australians. Pat was always seen as a bit of a rebel in the tennis world, and at 52 he still is, which I absolutely love. To sit with Pat just last week and have a good old chat with him was brilliant and a real privilege for me. I hope you enjoy listening to the great man, Patrick Hart Cash. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion A man after my own heart in thongs and bawdies I love it <laughs> Pat Cash, welcome to the Howie Games How are you going? <laughs> Good mate, yeah uh, it, It's great to see you This has been recorded in the middle of the Australian Open Um Mm. Well, beginning of the Australian Well, yeah, it, we, is. Really? yeah. It, is. it is the feels, start of it. It feels like it's the middle, but it's already the, just the beginning. Um, mate, there's so much to talk about, but uh, I had the opportunity of working with you a few years ago on the Hopman Cup, mm. and I was out of my depth and I was hosting, but I can all I remember is you coming in at the last moment, jumping in the host set and away you go, but you'd always be straight off the tennis court. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, this guy, 
he's been doing this for 45 years playing tennis and he still <laughs> loves it that much that he loves to get out and whack a ball. And I thought that was fantastic, Cash. Yeah, yeah. I do. I, li- I like hitting a tennis ball. Um, I mean, every damn day is a bigger challenge the older you get. <laughs> the, the, the back is wonky and the hips are hips going now, unfortunately. Uh, which is pretty stock standard for a tennis player. There are very, very few get out uns, unscathed. But, um, yeah, I like, I like playing tennis. Um, didn't always. I think there's times where you, you get pretty fed up with it. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think just about everybody's like that. And then I went through my, my phases and with injuries and everything else, another comeback, another comeback, <laughs> another comeback. And then, uh, you know, you just don't hit the right heights you, you want to and you're not as quick as you used to be. But... Uh, um, you know, and coaching now. Um, well, first of all, it, it's tennis is just about one of the best exercises there are. First yeah. of all, I mean, you, you're twisting, you're turning, you get you know, all the shots, you're bending, you're running, you're sprinting, you're turning. So, just for general exercise now, I, I take that as as a workout. And because I I have to coach now, and I'm coaching Coco Vanderway at the moment, and uh, you know, but I, you know, I've always been on the court coaching, and and I play the old you know legends match. So. You know, I just try and I just try and stay fit, but um, you know, but I also like doing other things. You know, like the, the yoga and Feldenkrais and gyrotonics and all sorts of stuff. And I'm always trying to experiment to see what works, and thing different things work better now than yeah. you know than they used to. I just can't go out there and pound the road anymore and do sprints and. I love still trying to do them and always usually pull something when I'm, when I'm trying to do a, just, a few Just weeks ago, <laughs> you know, you were there with the original, with Macca at the Hopman Cup, starting the whole thing, and yeah. I was watching the other night and all of a sudden there was an injury and all of a sudden P. Cash walked out on court. Oh, it, was, it was fantastic. I know, I was shitting myself at that stage, actually. <laughs> I've got to be honest. Uh, not because I can hit the ball. I, I needed no problems. If I was rallying or bowling, I'd be fine. But uh, I, because my back's bad, I can't really serve that well and I don't serve hardly at all, so... Uh, but uh, it's amazing what a little bit of Voltaire and a pop of mm. pop pill <laughs> 20 minutes before. I got the nod because Jack Sock uh, hurt himself in the singles match and and they, uh, they sort of turned to me and said, Cashy, you want to get out there with Coco, your, your, your pupil? And uh, we sort of looked at each other and went, well, I don't mind if she doesn't mind. And he said, yeah, come on, it's a bit of fun. So, um, but it was, it's, it's fun getting out there. As I said, I still play, but covering half a court, it's, it was okay. Did and you feel the love from the crowd? Cause we'll get yeah, it was fun. Here. Yeah. And, the, you know, there was ups and downs with the public around the place, but that's what I noticed watching was like everyone was just like, there was just so much love for you out on the court, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, um, you know, it's, it's funny because over the years, uh, the one thing I've noticed is that, you know, amongst all the... You know, there's there's the dramas and whatever controversies or you know things that were I mean not really that big in the, in the big grand scheme of things, but um, I always had support from the, the tennis fans or the public. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was, and so that the times where I was like, oh, you know, I don't want to put my head out, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, be seen and walking down the road. When I got on the tennis court, you know, other than the old heckler, there was pretty much support there. So that was, so it was really, it was really nice. I think things have sort of come around, and you know, I. I think for a while there, it was. I was just getting a bit sick of being um, branded as sort of the big loudmouth, you know, whatever. Mm. Uh, I think I was for a, for a little bit, and 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 I, and then so, you know, it's amazing what you what you can do. I just sort of said, you know what, I, I'm just not gonna. I just don't want to say anything controversial because anything remotely controversial just gets blown out of the out of the proportion you know and which is which is bizarre because working in the sports media we hate it when mr vanilla comes out and says yeah, nothing. Yeah. and then <laughs> a, a big proportion of the media and that's why i like to do a positive 
podcast, a big proportion yeah. of the media, when someone says something, it, it's front page and you're getting smashed. So it's a fine line, isn't it, for an elite athlete? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, it, we are a sports-loving country, so it's gonna, you're going to get that. And, yeah. Um, you know, and I get it. And you know what? I'm, the, I'm on the other side. You, you wouldn't believe it, but, you know, if you asked me 30 years ago, what are the two things you would will never be doing? And I'll say, for one thing, I won't be coaching. <laughs> I won't be coaching. I won't be hitting enough tennis balls. I'm not going to be coaching kids or young players, up-and-coming players. Forget that. And I will never have anything to do with the freaking media <laughs> in, in Australia. And here I am as a <laughs> writing for the Sunday Times and, and commentating. <laughs> and, you know, they, it's amazing, isn't it? It's how, how things turn around. So, you know, one part of it is... Yeah, is because I got to make a living, uh, but also I actually quite enjoy it. And I thought, well, you know, having an opinion is not a bad thing. And and I'm, I'm I think I'm very generous uh, with my opinion comments on other players because I know how damn tough it is mm. and, and sports people and, and and people in general. I think things that happen. Sure, we have our opinions on you know on politics and whatever. Don't get me started on Donald Trump, uh, but you know it's. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm actually, actually, I, you know what? I, that's one of the first things I do in the morning. I turn my phone on, and I flick to the news, and I have a laugh. And it's always about Donald Trump. So that, that actually gets me going in the morning. I just, I laugh because I don't take it, take it, I don't take it seriously well, at all. No it doesn't way, really affect me either. There's no other way to approach it. <laughs> it is, like, exactly. Like, it's, it, there it's is like, no other way to approach it's like, that, is what's there? He got, what's he done today? Oh, my God, who's he insulted now? That's awesome. It makes imagine me feel his, good about it. Imagine his media people like you. They wake up in the morning and say, oh... What he said last night. What's he tweeted out last night? It must be a nightmare. It must be an absolute nightmare. Exactly. Uh, He's not vanilla, though. We're, we're here in Melbourne at your beautiful hotel, um, and you're a Melbourne boy. Yeah. From yeah, a sporting absolutely. family. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Dad was... Um, well, Dad grew up in Hawthorne along with his um, seven other siblings and a uh, very working-class fam- family and barely scraped through a living. They all went to, uh, seemed, to get, seemed to get through university and uh, all very smart people. And Dad played um, uh, university blues or university blacks, or I can't remember which one it was. But anyway, he played the university team and they, then he got picked up for Hawthorne and, and, and played for a few years there and ended up being top goal scorer back in the days when the Hawks were... Barely getting a win. Uh, top goal scored with 26 goals for the year. Um, you kind of laugh at that back, back uh, you know, 10 years ago mm. or 15 years ago. Why? I mean, you kick, people are kicking hundreds and Peter Hudson and all this. Going and now, actually, way. 60, 70 goals is a, a really big season. It so, is. It is. So my dad would, if he was alive, he'd probably remind me, oh, I'm not that far off the... the <laughs> Off, off, off the uh, the beat at the moment, but um, yeah, so he he loved his sport, and um, Mum was quite sporty. She's um, American, so she came out. Uh, so she was an immigrant. She came out to to, uh, to Australia, and they met and um, played tennis as socially. Uh, but I played everything as you know, as a, as a kid, I played. You know, I was a cricket captain at school, and I was you know did this running. I, I was just anything to do with sport. You know, I was I was I was there, and I was always late for school. <laughs> what were you like at school? Um, uh, I was hardly dedicated, but I was, I was all right. I was probably mm. an average student. I could have, I absolutely could have been well, well better. Um, and uh, it, having my, my, the breeding that I had, actually, I should be. My you know, dad's a lawyer, and my other uncle's, uncle's a lawyer, and oh, right. you know they're all you know doctors and everything else that goes with it. But uh, I'm the, uh, I'm the lazy one. respect. So they were playing social tennis. When did you yeah. first? What's your first memories of tennis or picking up a tennis racket? Well. Gee, uh, just just the mum and dad. My first tennis lesson was actually down at Kuyong, um, which is ironically I was there, you know, last week uh, helping out the tournament, 
um, I said uh, right down the right down the back on the Auntie car courts uh, <laughs> tennis lesson and and uh, yeah just sort of just tried to get the you know, mum and dad thought well the best place to go would be Kuyong because they had the Australian Open or get a lesson there and had a few lessons there and then got some and went locally and so uh, you know it wasn't nothing much too serious the the, the um, I was decent in the state I was about three or something at the age of sort of twelve and and then we moved home which was the Moved from um, from Baldwin, um, where I used to play uh, Q Rovers and, and junior football there, and we moved out to uh, uh, Park Orchards or Donvale, the edge there. So mm-hmm. right out in the bush, really. And there was a um, I went to school at Whitefriars. The first day of school, I didn't know anybody because I was from a completely new area. Only one kid. I knew one kid called Warren Brennan, and he was a number two in the age group above me, number two in the in the country. And uh, so I was, you know, sort of went over to him and said, oh, hi, you know, I was the only guy I knew. Um, and, uh, and he said, uh, I said, oh, yeah, where do, you, where do you go to coaching? He said, oh, Ian, Bar- Ian Barclay, he coaches me and Mark Hartnett and Ann Minter, and they're all number ones in the country. And I went, oh, okay, Heatherdale Tennis Club. So straight down there, and you know, what a lucky move that was. You know, he, Ian was uh, my coach all the way through. Uh, until I was, yeah, gee, in my late twenties, really. Um, so it was, it was a great partnership. You know, as the, the planets aligned, yeah. I just ended up there, and, um, and what a coach he was. And at that stage, did you want to be a tennis player, or did you want footy to be player? On I wanted to play for Hawthorne. You want to play for the Hawks? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Was, what type uh, of player were you? Um, well, I was, I was quite tall as a kid, so yeah. uh, you know, I'm only six foot now. But as a kid, I was a bit of a fast grower, so I was sort of thrown in the in the, in the ruck. But then I had these tendonitis problem so they threw me down the forward line I just to mate, take the big screamer and kick the goals you know all I can that, all picture you as a glory boy <laughs> hey, hey, while we're on that while we're on that topic people that are familiar with this podcast know that I have two children Cashy um, mm. and they normally ask a question at the end of the podcast um, okay. I, I tell them about the person um, and they fire away with the question but since you're talking about the Hawks right because uh, we're a Hawthorne family um, now I've got the pickle who's eight and operates as the pickle, and my son, who people listen to all the time, know him as the Big Penguin. Changed okay. his name from Mac a few years ago to the Big Penguin. That's oh, the way he likes to roll. Right, okay. He was talking about you, and he was asking about you, and then I said, you're a Hawthorne man, and he said, right, I've got my question. So okay. early doors, unusually, this is for you, Pat, from the Big Penguin. Hi, Pat. Big Penguin here. Cool that you won Wimbledon, but it's even cooler that you go for the Hawks. My favourite player is Cyril. Go Cyril, go Cyril, go Cyril. Who's your favourite player? Jeepers, it's hard to beat Cyril, isn't it? <laughs> it is hard to beat Cyril, but you've probably seen a bit more of the Hawks than the big penguin hats. Uh, well, I don't know because I don't get them. I don't get the games. I, I get them on the. I watch them live on the uh, AFL Live TV and on the computer. That's about as good as I can do. Occasionally, you get a game. Like if you're lucky enough to get the game at uh, in London, I'm in London. Right, but you, you spent on, but time on the off season training with the Hawks. I so did. Overall, they would they, they were the big personalities. Then who who's your yeah. favourite Hawk? When Dipper and Dunstall and well, Brereton. And oh, I loved them all. I mean, were they tough nuts in those they days? Were, they they were. really were. I mean, now it's hard to pick a player I mean, uh, it's hard to go past Burgoyne as, yep. as, as, as my favourite players but they're all they're all so super talented and un- unbelievable athletes yeah. you know uh, you do scratch your head sometimes at some of the things that Cyril does <laughs> and uh, he lights up everything but we're you know lucky we had a great era and 
and a, and a great club. And you know, I was lucky. My dad used to bring me into the into the club rooms, and you know, the, the thrill of really? being able to go into Glenferry there after the after the game, and dad would rock up there, and they go, "Oh, Pat, yeah, let go, go in." Not Pat Junior, but Pat Senior. Huh. Yeah, come on, come in, and I'll be you know just sitting there, and these guys were you know covered in mud. You know, there was always mud then, wasn't it? Of course, and, uh, it was. As these guys played, and uh, as I got a better player, and uh, you know, that that had some interest in me, and I got to meet Lethal Lee Matthews, who was my hero growing up, really. Uh, Peter Knights, and um, uh, and then uh, I got to try, yeah, did a bit of training with him one one year, but that was a bit later. Um, what was that like? And me and uh, me and Dunster were were always neck and neck at the back, either last or second last <laughs> in the long. 20k run up and down the hills up Waddle Bloody Road up there down. Well, neither, neither of us were a long distance runner. If you look at our legs, you'll see. No, no, these guys aren't made for for distance. Um, they're sprinters. Um, but uh, yeah, we were we were uh, we were right at the back there. Uh, that was usually I I did the training there usually um, after about three hours of tennis as well, four hours of tennis. So right. I, that was my excuse, um, which I think was pretty legitimate. But it was great fun just just uh, just being amongst those guys and and uh, they're, they're still mates of mine, you know, you know, Dermy Burton and uh, guys like this. There was it was an interesting year of, of football, wasn't it? it I mean, was. it really was. And it was gee, that was that was. Tough men. They were real, real, real r- tough men. Really, I mean, they're, they're not that they're not tough now, but different form of tough now. Yeah, it is. I mean, they were. I mean, you look back. That was really some stuff that was cheap. That was, yeah. it was it, <laughs> how, it how was. they got a lot of weight with that. Some of that stuff, I don't ever know. So when did, Cashy? When did tennis start to become a dominant part of your life? When, when did it take over from school? And when did you or your family actually think, all right, well, this could be. A pathway for me. Yeah, well, I, I just I just started winning some of the junior tournaments, and next thing you know, I was uh, you know number one in in Victoria, and next thing you know, I was number one in the in the country. Um, so uh, at that stage, and it's hard to believe when we look at the Australian Open now, but um, there was no funding for junior tennis, um, so we didn't, there was no there was no money to send us away. Yet myself and as I said the three the three boys that were. Uh, well, two particular with Ian Barclay, and he had two girls, the Minter sisters, mm-hmm. were all number ones in the country, and we were really growing, you know, too fast. Wally Masur was the other boy who was a dominant guy, and uh, Wally was a couple of years, couple of years older than me, and and um, so Ian sort of got together with Mark Edgley, um, Michael Edgley, so the premier promoter, Michael Edgley, right. you know, does the Moscow Circus, and used to bring out Bob Marley and everybody else. Uh, his, his son was quite a good tennis player, uh, one of the better in the country. And he said, "Look, I'll put some money in for you guys, along with um, which was well, Commonwealth Bank, I suppose they, they, they were called. They're called now, but um, and a few other people, and just pulled enough money for us to go away for two years, for like six weeks, uh, to Europe. And that was just a massive learning curve. I mean, wow, did we learn? We got day one, we turned up in after." Close to two days of travelling because you went, you know, you went Melbourne, Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney, you know, Singapore, Singapore, Bombay, Bombay, Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Dubai, Athens or Rome, and then we ended up somewhere, somewhere else. We ended up in Milan, and it was, it was, it was one of those 
flights and brutal. No movies, you know. There was a movie every five five hours, wasn't there? One movie on the little screen up there that you could see. And people and would have been smoking too, probably. Yeah, 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 as well. all, yeah. Exactly. All this, they were smoking and uh, had the little headphones that were played the same songs over and over and over again. And the plastic headphones, like Doctor Stethoscopes. <laughs> Remember those ones? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I yeah. Do. We're showing our age now. Yeah, they, they, they hurt your ears after about ten minutes, let alone you know twenty four hours. Um, so we arrived there. We turned up in Milan. Beautiful tennis club. It was like, wow. It was like Kuyong, but this was just like a normal club. You know, it was like Kuyong or Royal South Yarra or whatever, but this was just a normal club. Well, we thought it was a normal club. Uh, we looked down the, the winner's board of the, uh, the 16 championships and there was Martina Navratilova, Bjorn Borg, Ivan Lendl. I think, whoa, these guys have made it, you know. This is the big, big junior tournament. So uh, first day, I came with my partner, with Mark Hartnett, and we had to share a court with this this young Swedish guy. And we were hitting; he was around one end, and you play two on one. So you you know that's a kind of standard sort of thing when you got three partners, mm. players, and you, then you rotate around. So we were warming this, hitting this with this kid, and um, he didn't miss a ball for about 20 minutes when he was on his own. For, and we just looked at each other and went, oh, my goodness, this is who? We've never heard of this kid. Uh, this is just, an, just some Swedish guy. And we, th- we thought, we are going to get so badly beaten up. by every. If this is just some random kid who booked the court. As it turned out, it was Matt Spielander. Yeah, yeah. We didn't know it at the time, but we, you know, he, he turned out to be pretty damn good. Yeah, my But word. we thought he was just a normal kid who just booked the court. He couldn't find a court because he had no partner. He's some Swedish guy that's randomly just turned up. Um, but uh, we didn't do so well the first year. We came out the second year and we, we did well. He won the, Mark won the tournament and we won the doubles. And then the year after, my dad said to me, he said, when the first year, he, my dad came and travelled with my mum to have a look and, they, and uh, they saw the name, saw the standard of play and went, you know, if you, you win this one day, son, you know, you, you can go, you can quit school and go and give it a shot. And that was enough. Quit school was enough, not to give it a shot, to, to, motiv- <laughs> to motivate me. And uh, we played well and ended up winning it. And after that, I went straight from there, got a wild card into Wimbledon Juniors and got to the final Wimbledon Juniors. And I thought, well, you know, now I've got, I can actually get some sponsorship money to, to, to travel on the road. And uh, by that time, Tennis Australia started putting a bit of money in to uh, a, a team and um, had enough money to talk, think about hiring Ian to travel with me, my coach. So, and then I was on my way. So I had a bit of luck and um, had some results at the right time. You talk about those results, and I uh, I dug around and found your book, mm, uh, good the effort. autobiography of Pat Cash, uncovered. There's a bit of um, story behind that book. Uh, you, you, can I give you some, get some of the money of that because the publisher ran off with it all. It all. Did they? What, yeah. What's this? It's nine ninety five. Didn't make a cent out of that. Really? No. What happened? Uh, Guys, he's running for his life at the moment. Is he? <laughs> right. Yeah, he's a, he's a dodgy guy, small publisher. Not the guys here, but the guy in, the, in the England where it started. And he, he did it. He routinely did it with um, with some of the other celebrities, that he, sportsmen. He did uh, books with. Anyway, it's another story. So it's well, bittersweet that book. It, it's an amazing book because knowing you a little bit, I thought, well, this will be reasonably honest. Um, it's really honest. Um, and, mm. and you were just telling me, as I was explaining to you beforehand, that it was the impetus to another famous tennis book as well. Um, well, possibly, yeah. I mean, um, I know Andre Agassi, when he, he came up and he said, oh, I really like your book, you know. And I've always liked um, rock and roll biographies, you know. Yeah. And um, 
going a bit further, I mean, uh, you know, Motley Crue and these bands, old rock and roll bands and the stories of Led Zeppelin and, and that sort of stuff. And, you know, that were, that were some really fun books. I mean, they no really... No holes barred. Uh, no hole bar, yeah. you know. Uh, you know, we, had, we went for four days, you know, snorting cocaine and everything, that sort of stuff, and then shagging all these girls. <laughs> and, you know, that was sort of like, you know, oh, my God, hey, are they really saying this? And so I kind of liked that. I was, I was, they were page turners, and I thought, well, they're just being honest, and they were just mm. completely honest, These, these, some of these rock stars. And I said, well, you know, I kind of like that. I don't want really somebody going, oh, and then I won the second round, six four six four. Yeah. And then I played... Fred, Fred Blow and blah 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 and he you know, beat him 6-7 in the third and that was a really tough match and I got a warning and uh, okay they need a little bit of that but uh, I thought this is getting get stuck into what it was really like I mean to, to be perfectly honest it was tough and it was pain, it was painful and it was a success and there was injuries and there was tears and there was blood and there was everything that goes with it divorce and Actually, I didn't, even, I didn't think divorce was even in that one. <laughs> that's a whole book in itself. We need to get part two. Hopefully you make some money out of it. Yeah, I was thinking of doing part two. Well, you should because this one finishes in the early, mid-90s. Yeah. So there's another 20 years to get through. There is, but I, I, I tend to think that there's, of all the things that I've done and, and sort of when around this time I wrote this book, I was in a really big, uh, I, I think, it's not really, I want to say I became a, I came spiritual, but I believed in a... Uh, I suppose I believed in something that was more important. Um, and I've been on this path to to become a better person. And um, and so I've done so many workshops, seen so many amazing people and seen so many things uh, in my lifetime and been able to sort of analyse them better now than, than when I was just pl- hitting tennis balls and running from the media because I didn't want to talk to anybody, being a, a shy kid. Mm. Though I, I might not appear that way, but... I really am. Um, you still shy now? I, yeah, I don't like I don't like going out. That's probably why you don't see much of me other than sort of talking about tennis generally. And I do, you know, this is nice to... I'm very open and honest, but I don't I don't really feel comfortable in, in, uh, in public. Um, though, you know, I, I like to be... I, I go out in public as if nobody knows, knows me. And, and I don't get recognised like I used to. But, uh, you know, I just go out there, I go to the shops, I go to the concert, rock concerts. I'll, you know, one of my favourite things is going to a rock concert by myself, standing, you know, near front stage and just, you know, just doing my own thing. You know, that's one of the great things because nobody's watching me. They're all yeah. watching the band. <laughs> Back to Pat Cash in a moment. Next week, we are going racing with 1980 Formula One world champion Alan Jones. AJ, as he's affectionately known, is a true man's man. His Formula One experiences are very, very different to the corporate, slick, controlled Formula One we see these days. F1 in the 70s and 80s was a time of high, high risk, really high risk, on and off the track. The stories of James Hunt and the way he would be off track are legendary. I know he's a good mate of yours. Was it everything and more that he was described as as Absolutely. the typical playboy racer? Oh yeah, was he? Yeah, he was. He was. He was a. He was. A, he was a star. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the smile on your face. I'm just taking you back 40 years. I reckon. Yeah. First of all, I went to James's room and um, we went in there and he said, "Hey, Big Al he used to call me. Big Al. Big Al. He said, um, do you fancy a, 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 he offered me some marijuana and, and I had a couple of beers and um, being absolutely not used to it, um, he said, AJ, there's a waitress downstairs that I think I've made a mark with and I've teed up to meet her outside 
um, I've told her to give you the nod and you can let me know and I'll liaise with her outside. I said, yeah, yeah, right. But anyway, I suppose the old hoochie cooch got the better of me and I've gone downstairs and I didn't quite work out how to get downstairs without letting everybody know I was a bit ordinary. So, right. I, so I walked down backwards thinking they wouldn't, they wouldn't recognise me. You're a bit low key. Trust me, you do not need to have any interest in motorsport to enjoy AJ in full cry next week. We've had a couple of great partners in recent times on the Howie Games, and if your business would like to advertise on the show, email thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com for some further details. Join the revolution where your business message can reach a large, specific audience in no time at all. Alrighty, back to Pat. What was it like at the peak of Pat Cash when you were a Wimbledon winner, two-time Davis Cup champion? I know you spent a lot of time in the UK. What was life in the public spotlight then? Like when you were walking down the street here in Melbourne, it would have been crazy, I would imagine. Uh, well, I don't mean crazy, but it was just really weird. Was it? You know, I've <laughs> I never got photographs. I never got the. I, I mean, I, I get. I kind of get autographs. Um, people want to autograph. Or can you write something to Mum or whatever to my Mum or. I kind of get that a little bit. Uh, I've really always felt uncomfortable with photographs, and I've never, you know, whenever somebody's actually, it's a pretty appropriate photo on the cover there. Yeah. So, like, I don't really want to don't take a photo of me, no. but I don't want to look at the camera um, in that book. Yeah. It's kind of a bit, kind of appropriate there. Um, you know, everybody's got a camera, haven't they? Selfies. So you get, to, you get to selfies. Oh my goodness! How do you get the selfies, oh. Cashy? Everybody, it's just social media because everybody yeah, wants a photo to show their their, their brother, their, their mates, and their mm. friends. Oh, look who I found! I mean, I just you know, I just stand there, you know. But I kind of get it. Um, no, it. I just get people coming and say, "Can I take a photo?" Don't even hello or anything. Just uh, photo, snap. Okay. Oh, okay. Thanks. You know, nice so, to uh, meet you. Hi. How you going? You know, have a nice day. Uh, thanks, Pat. And anything like that? No. So, just, as a shy person, <laughs> as a shy person, how do you deal with that type of fame? When oh, mate, everyone thinks so they right. know you because they've seen you, and yeah, yeah, no. everyone thinks they're well, your you best get, mate. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, you. you well, go, I'm not you quite it. at your level, Cashy, no, but, but yeah. you would. You would here in Australia it was more than more than me because you're on the on the you know you're you're there, out there. Yeah, it's um, uh, I don't I can kind of handle it now, but I, I really didn't like it. I got to be honest, I didn't mm. really like. It. All I want to do is play tennis and just hang out with my mates a bit and my girlfriend. And I had to, at that stage I had a young child as well, so <clears throat> here I was at you know 22. With a young child, with a girlfriend I really wasn't getting on very well with, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Travelling the world as a Wimbledon champion and cameras everywhere I went. Um, and, uh, you know, just trying to trying to win a damn tennis match. And, you know, I wasn't... I just wanted everybody to get the, get the hell away from me. You know, you just want your own space sometimes. And, mm. you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a typical ma- a normal man who needs his space sometimes. Need a man cave or <laughs> need to go somewhere or... Just hang out with these mates or go to the beach or go surfing or me for it's a rock concert. Just I'm just going to go to the rock concert by myself. Oh, you're going to go pick up girls? No, I'm not going to pick up girls. I'm going to go and check the guitarist out and see what he's doing. You know, <laughs> oh, you don't want me around? No, I just can I just have one night to myself, you know? I come home, you know, and then just, <laughs> you take the kid. Yeah, he's been up all night. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, you, I'm just a normal guy, you know, normal issues with, uh, with the relationships and everything else but uh, well, in your book yeah. in your book and I think the first time I remember you as a young man was Davis Cup when I would have been really young you won a Davis Cup mm. in 
I don't know, 983 is yeah, it? Yeah, 83 and then 86 after that. Well, yeah. you, well, 18, 19 at the time. Mm, yeah. And it's fascinating in your book because you beat the Swedes and you're an Australian hero, but, but all the downtimes in the book almost relates back to winning that tournament. Tell me if I've got this wrong. And, and the pressure you then felt to be successful. Yeah, it wasn't much fun. And that's why I have a sympathy for, you know, guys like Kyrgios or Tomic or whatever. Okay, you know, we all screw up and I've screwed up and I've screamed at the press and told them, you know, F, F off or or an umpire. Um, so I sort of get, I get it, you know. Um, it's really hard being the next biggest thing, big thing, you know, because there is a hell of a lot of expectations. And the best, biggest expectation is you have on yourself. You know, you really want to... But in, 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 in tennis, you don't really have a support network. You know, you might have your mates. <clears throat> it's a bit different these days because you can sort of bring your friends with you and your trainer and whatever, mm. and you can isolate yourself a little bit. But back then, you didn't have the money to do that, though. I did have a coach. I was lucky to – a very rare one to have the money to have a, have a coach. You know, a couple of the top players had one, Lendl and McEnroe and uh, a couple of guys like that. But that was about it. Um, most had a sort of one – coach to two or three players Villander had got a coach but he was in a team team Rossignol or um, yeah so it was yeah it was being the next big thing is not easy I gotta say I really and and, um, and every loss feels like you know it's written up and and uh, so who some, are you letting down when you lose in your mind well, yourself, first of all, but, you know, certainly with your family as well. You feel like, you know, your family's attached to you. You feel like you're letting them down, you know. They're the ones that support you. And, you and uh, you know, I was lucky I had a great coach who was really supportive and it was always, you know, OK, let's, let's get on the court and get better. And I was just so determined. I basically played my whole career, um, my main part of my career, by training, training myself to death because I didn't want to lose. Not because I wanted to win, because I didn't want to lose. And I didn't think that was kind of unusual, but I think it kind of is. It's quite poisonous in actual fact. And I think some of the guys who kind of play a bit like that, I think Andy Murray plays a little bit like that. Um, it's very stressful on the mind and the body, and your body ends up breaking down, and your mind just says, that's enough, stop. And I think that's what happened to me. My mind just went... You know, for years of just pushing hard and just getting out there and training and training because I didn't want to feel that pain of losing. It was overwhelming, the strongest feeling that I had um, amongst above, above anything other than the, the love I had for my son. And and so that was priority. Um, Did you get joy from winning at the time, or just joy from avoiding defeat? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> joy from jo- avoiding yeah, joy from avoiding defeat. Um, the classic case was when I walked out after, after winning Wimbledon. I mean, I walked in, got out there, celebrated with my, 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 my family and in the box, as everybody, everybody knows, and walked into the locker room and people were shaking my hands. And the members, in those days, the members were allowed in the locker room because it was their locker room. We, we were just borrowing it. So I'd shake hands with Fred Perry was there and you know, a couple of people. And, and then Barker's, you know, was there when he sort of sat down and... I finally had a chance to have a bit of a chat and I think one of the very first things that came out of my mouth was alright let's go and win the US Open you know that was you know instead of going jeez we won Wimbledon hmm. I won Wimbledon this is awesome let's have a party let's crack the champagne let's do that it was like yeah Barker's great I won Wimbledon but let's, let's go and win the US Open now let's win the US Open and he's like oh yeah yeah just chill out will you <laughs> just chill out so no no, no I want to I get out there and so I didn't I didn't smell the roses I didn't smell 
Hence the tattoo on my arm. Uh, that's that's exactly what that tattoo is. It's a rose. So it's a it's a rose which says uh, this. <laughs> I've got my contact. This too shall this pass. This too shall pass. Which means which means the bad times will pass, but it also means the good times will pass. So smell the roses. And uh, huh. supposedly, I mean, it depends on who you talk to, but it was a, uh, a Sufi. Uh, a Sufi priest or Sufi, wise Sufi man, or, or they say it's a Jewish man. It depends on which who, which nation, you, uh, which mm. nationality you talk to. But the king came to this wise man and said, "Make me happy. Do something that makes me happy. I'm miserable. I've got everything in the world. Everything. Look what I've got. And I'm, I'm unhappy." And he just went away and he came back and he just wrote that this too shall pass. And allegedly, the king mm. got wisdom from it and changed his whole life. And it's kind of right. And I kind of. <laughs> As, as weird as it was putting it in my arm, and I didn't quite understand it, but uh, uh, it, it's kind of right. So I'm just living, yeah, just living the, the just living every day. You know, what, it's, it's, fant- it's been a fantastic journey the last ten years. So winning Wimbledon. Well, firstly, what are your memories of that day? It is. I've been lucky enough on this podcast to speak to John Bertrand, and obviously, um, that's an iconic Australian sporting mm. moment. Kathy Freeman, another mm. one, an iconic sporting moment. Yeah. Like, you winning Wimbledon is an iconic Australian sporting moment, which in itself is bloody fantastic. What, what are your mm. memories of all that? Um, well, the memory specifically is... Uh, well, there's another one, sort of being... Another issue with, you know, being the next big thing, because we had a lot of champions. I mean, mm. Wimbledon champions up at a yin-yang, you know. There was Newcomb, there was Leiva, there was, you know, uh, Emerson, there was Fraser. They, they, you know, they, we had a lot of them, but then all of a sudden we didn't. Mm. Um, you know, hot, a really hot Wimbledon, so it was, it was stinking hot. The courts were really dry. It was fast. It suited me down to the ground, and luckily I had a sports psychologist with me, Jeff Bond, who worked with the... Um, Institute of Sport, and that was from my physio, David Zucker, who used to work with the Olympics as well. He was an Olympic physio. He said, listen, you know, why don't you work with this guy? So I had the right guy in my team. I knew I could win it. It was a matter of doing it. It's another thing doing it, you know, being the, you know, being, knowing that you can win. It's like being the favourite for a 100-metre sprint or whatever. It must be tough being a 100 or hurdler because you got to go and you can't, you can't falter. <laughs> you clip that, you clip that uh, hurdle, you're done. Um so, you know, I felt I was kind of in that position where, you know, all I've got to do is I've got to do it. I, you know, I can beat Lendl. I know I can beat Lendl. I beat him at the Australian Open. It's my favourite surface. It's his least favourite surface. I should be able to beat this guy even though he got to the final the year before, blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, this, the stress was, was, was high and I knew I had to win the first set and, and I did get through the first set. And, um, you know, it just, it just had to sort of come together and, 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 it, and it did. Um, it did come together and... Uh, you know, I often, often joke about the mental stuff. We, it's, it's household words now almost. The coaches roll it off their tongue. You know, one match, well, we're just playing one, one match, one game at a time, one match at a time. You know, we'll take the finals as they come, you know, all that sort of stuff. But they were, they were not known words back then. So Process, not result. These, exactly. This was stuff that I was learning and I never heard it before. And uh, Jeff was great. And he said, look, this is, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to focus on something. And it was sort of setting the point up because it wasn't about serving aces all the time in those days. Uh, we didn't have the powerful strings and rackets, and and it was about setting the point up and finishing it off and being crisp and sharp. And so that was my game plan. And um, you know, it was to put put all that in, into in, into play. And it, you know, kind of it kind of worked. And you know, I uh, 
I'll probably become more famous for climbing through the stands than anything else. Did uh, you plan that is, or not? Yeah, well, sort of. I did, yeah, but not very well because I kind of got stuck halfway <laughs> up. So, um, so you had a, a thought, if I win this, I'm going to jump into the crowd. Yeah, that was, that was about it. Right. Uh, I said the night before, yeah, pretty much exactly what you said. Yeah, yeah. When I win tomorrow, I'm going to jump into jump in and thank my come to the box and thank them because <laughs> they were the they were the team that put me together. You know, I had the psychologist, I had Anne Quinn, my my trainer, trainer, a woman trainer. Yeah, but yeah, back then there's not even a woman trainer on the tour now. I know I think she was the only woman trainer I think in the history of the men's tour, and that was back in '87. So, but she was the best. I wanted the I wanted her. I want she was the best. Um, and it was just, uh, she was important, of course, uh, and my dad was up there and my sister, uh, my lovely sister was up there as well. So there was a, a, connect, a whole bunch of connection and people had really supported me. And, you know, when you're having a baby and you're 20 and you're on the road and you know, you've got to tell your family, you know, my girlfriend's pregnant and it's like, I mean, you just met her. Who is she? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a baby. Uh, I'm only 20. You know, this, these are sort of things I look back and go, jeepers, how do we navigate all that? You know, and that was with support. And, um, and uh, so, you know, these were people who were really, really crucial to my, and I wanted to thank them. So, but, you know, that was about all I, that was about that all I thought about is, yeah, I'll, I'll thank them tomorrow. And, and it looked like it was spontaneous because, you know, as I sort of pumped my fist to them and I turned around, of course, to shake the opponent's hand and shake the umpire's hand and, and if you've ever been to Wimbledon on a finals day, you'll know how efficient they are. So mm. by the time I shook the umpire's hand, threw my racket on my bag, turned around, the the, the carpet was already out and the lines, the, the ball boys had already lined up. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, just they're all lining up and everybody's lining in position. I was ready. I, was, I didn't, you know, barely shaking hands. <laughs> and, they're all, and I thought, oh, dear, I can't go now. And I sort of just sat there for a second and went, well, but I ain't going now. When am I going to go? So, so then I went off, and it sort of looked like it was a spur of the moment thing. But it was for a moment. Then I chickened out. <laughs> Glad I did it. And it became as almost as iconic as a win itself. Yeah, Cash, yeah. It, it, Some of the, it was a, it was a golden generation for tennis. We it talked was, about wasn't it? entertainers earlier on. Mm. Well, firstly, the bloke you played against. If you don't mind me, I'd love to ask you about some of the blokes you played against. Mm. What was Lendl like? Obviously, it was sweet to beat him. I don't think you blokes were that tight. Were no, you? no, I didn't like him as a person, really. Um, I got, to, I've got uh, at the time, I, I got to, I got to, uh, I had a lot of appreciation for, a lot of respect for the guy because he was number one in the world and uh, just a, a different personality than me, I think. Should we say? Um, we got on. We, we got on. You got to get on with the guys, you know. You say hello, and you, you mm. know, blah blah blah, and you, you, you got to warm up in the same damn court with them half the time, and. So you get on with each other, but I didn't really spend a lot of time with him. Um, but one heck of a player, won everything except Wimbledon and got to the final twice. And is massive it? power hitter, the first power hitter in, in, in the men's tennis, the modern era. Massive forehand, massive serve, um, backhand, big backhand, just a little limited at the net. And Did it bring you joy that you stopped him winning Wimbledon? Oh yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It did, it did. Uh, he stopped me more times than right. of their career. McEnroe is obviously a much talked about, and you, you guys have lived a life of commentary together now, playing music yeah. together. What was it like walking onto the court to play John McEnroe? Well, gee, you know, you knew something was going to happen. He probably the most skilled player I've ever played against. Was um, he? Yeah, just as just just the shots he could put produce, and he, he'd always come off the match scratching your head, going, "Oh, how did he do that?" Uh, unbelievably quick. Uh, that was the thing I think is people under, underestimate how fast he was. He didn't look fit. He almost looked podgy a little <laughs> bit, but he was lightning fast. I don't know if it was the reflex or just he's off the mark, and he's still quick. 
Uh, he could never get the lob over his head. He just could never, unless it was literally on the line in the corner, could you get the lob over his head. He was just so quick getting back for a smash. I'm never, it's like Federer. You see Federer now just bounce back when up he goes and Rafa as well. Though he was that quick, uh, no doubts about it. And just the touch, phenomenal uh, left-handed serve. And then you got them, of course, the, all the mental games that he used to play against you. And what, what would he do in, in that respect of the game? Well, as soon as he started, as soon as you started getting on top of him, he would just crack, throw a fit and <laughs> complain to the umpire, or try and put you off, or whatever. Whether he was, I mean, he it was. There's no doubts he, you know, he. he uh, he tried to put you off, but I think he genuinely lost his temper as well. So it was a combination, and, and he always says, well, you know, he jokes now. He says, oh, it's in part of my contract to lose my temper these days, <laughs> but I think he genuinely still does. He just, he sometimes a racket just goes flying out of his hands, and you go, John, I'm 52, and you're like 58. Why are you throwing the racket across the court at the umpire? Still now, still now. <laughs> Not so bad. I haven't seen him do it the last couple of years. I'm right. thinking, Mike, stayed in 56 years to keep the racket in his hand. But, uh, and how did you fight with that within yourself? Because you are a – it's again, I think, why Aussies loved you, because you are a hard-on-sleeve style tennis player. You know, yeah. you, you got into blues with the media or, or the umpires. What's that like when you're on court and – it's going against you and it's starting to bubble inside you. Well, I had to learn to control that. So I've got to be honest and say I don't think I've ever lost a match. I lost one match early in my career because I just was seriously so upset that I couldn't, couldn't play, so angry. But What were you upset about? Uh, I can't remember. It was about right. 82, 83 when I first went on the circuit and I completely lost it and lost the match and realised, OK, you can't do that again. But, uh, but I did need help to control it and, 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 and there's lots of techniques that I was learning from Jeff. It was all new. Sports psychology was completely new. But, uh, you know, to, to be fighting, you know, like, like hell in a, in a Grand Slam final and then to have a bad line call. I mean, the line calls these days are really good. They're almost like professional umpires. Even the, every, all the linesmen, they're practiced up. They're really very good. And, the, and at my day, the balls would be out two feet and they, they wouldn't see it. They'd be mm. half asleep. Or and there was a guy who was an umpire. He's up there. Usually his second time he'd, in a year he played, he'd done a professional match and the ball's coming... You know, it, well, in those days, we couldn't hit it much more than 200 k's, but we still get hit at 200 k's, uh, you know, and you wouldn't pick it up. Uh, you know, so it would just drive you nuts. It would drive you absolutely nuts. Um, you know, in England, it was almost worse because it was all you know, the establishment. These old guys had been there for 40 years and they're half asleep and they're just on the line and I, I want to be a linesman again this year. <laughs> yeah, but, you know... Frank, you're you know you're still in a you're in a wheelchair. You got to get a walk out there, mate. You know, but that's the way it was. And then so so when McEnroe went nuts, and when I went nuts, it was usually for a pretty good reason. Did winning Wimbledon change? Well, it, it obviously did change your life. How does it change your life? Winning something that you've, I presume, wanted to win your entire tennis life. Yes, I mean you say you achieved your goals at the age of 22, but I kind of had. I mean, it was only Australian Open that I wanted to win, and that's. You know, I fell short twice on that. I wanted to win Davis Cup and Wimbledon and the Australian Open. And, uh, you know, if I won the US Open, great. French Open, you know, that, that's probably the toughest physically, physical one because on the clay. But I realised I was never going to be able to match it with those guys on the clay. Um, but, yeah, it was sort of at that stage after uh, an injury came in and I was 23 and lost, the, lost here in the Australian Open final, which was... The real heartbreaker, losing to losing to Villander um, in five. Losing to yeah, first year in Melbourne Park or Flinders Park it was then. Losing to Edberg was the one that got away because uh, I really felt I could beat Stefan and had a did my shoulder in uh, in the quarterfinal match against Noah. 
managed to get through against beat Lendl in the semi-final, but my arm was completely gone. So I sort of walked off that match thinking, you know what, you were, you know, you had him, you had him beaten there. You had him uh, up in the go to, to go into the fifth set, had him d- double break, and I just served th- I think three double faults in a row, two games in a row. My arm had just completely gone and let him back into the match. If I could have finished that set off, fourth set off, got momentum, gone into the fifth set, I think I would have got him, but. You know, I sort of walked away and went, gee, I was getting killed. He smashed me in the first two sets. I couldn't serve and he was just too good. And I thought, gee, I, I come walked away and said, wow, I actually got pretty close. I was quite happy with that. I didn't think I'd get this close. Mm. And, geez, I could have actually won it. But against Villander, that was a heartbreaker. But I played really well. So, And are you the type yeah. of bloke now that, and I know you've done a lot of work on, as you said at the start, improving yourself as a person, does it ever hit you that you were that close to winning those two or is that a lifetime ago and you don't give it a second thought? No, it irks me every time I walk in a Melbourne park. Does every it? time, yep. Every time I walk in there, I, I get irked because, you know, there's photos of the champions up there. There's, you know, all this, and that sort of stuff. And, yep, every every time I walk back in there, it upsets me. Uh, well, I wouldn't say it upsets me, but I just have a little bit of a... Uh, it's there. Uh, you know, you know, and, uh, yeah. yeah, it's there. It's there. You know, you know I was only... You know, fraction away from it, but you know, that's 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 sport, I suppose. You know, yeah. <laughs> but it does, yeah. It, it's it, it it grinds me a bit. More of Pat in a moment. Last week's ep of the Howie Games featured Yelena Dockich, whose phenomenal book Unbreakable is out now. Thanks so much for all the positive messages at Mark Howard zero three on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram regarding Yelena's courageous story. One she tells to try and help others dealing with physical emotional and verbal abuse um very often i would go you know out there on the court even later when i my my ranking dropped maybe i was 100 in the world but people don't realize i was going out there with all of these problems and winning you know a match maybe on the challenger level was such a big accomplishment and it's hard to explain that to people on you know such an individual sport and a tough tour like that but for me those were you know accomplishments because there was so much going on still in my private life that I again talk about and everything that he was putting me through i mean i'm not sure which player in the world if ever has had to have security guards to protect them against their father you know threatening to come and kill everybody so i think that in itself going out on the court is an accomplishment if you get the chance, check out the entire back catalogue. There's a lot of them there these days. Alrighty, thanks to everyone who has got in touch, by the way, regarding personal Howie Game style podcasts. So if you have someone close to you whose story you would like documented, send us an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. Now, these aren't for broadcast, but one-on-one chats that I will conduct with someone close to you whose history and story you want preserved for posterity, something for your family, friends and future generations to have as a keepsake. Time to go back to Pat Cash. If there's anything I've learned doing this podcast, that it's people that achieve truly elite things... It's never all plain sailing. In fact, oh. a lot of it is not plain sailing. Yeah. You talk in your book, probably before anyone was really understanding of mental health, you talked about mental health in your book. Mm. How, yep. how do you reflect on that period? You, do you have a dark side to your personality? I don't know if it's a dark side, but I certainly was a bad depression there's no doubts about that and what, what and uh, what from from what well i i think um 
I think most of it. Gee, it's it, it's it's hard to know exactly, but mm. where it all where it all started and where it all came from. But certainly, it, it came piling upon itself when I was getting injured all the time and trying to make comebacks, and um, that was. But I always I think that most of my career I had a little minor bit of depression throughout the whole, you know, eight years or whatever that I was on and off. Ten years that I was on and off injured. Um, you know, at the end it was it got worse. Um, Gee, you know, looking back at it, I think uh, I don't know if I would have could have done much different. Um, I think uh, I was in a. Is this something you're comfortable talking about or not? Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, hundred percent. Right. Um, I, I think I was. That's why I was very happy to put this in the book because I think it's a really. There's so many sports people that are in this position, and um, that's why I put it. I wrote it. One of the reasons mm. I think I just. It's quite confronting. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's very cathartic writing. Actually, writing the book and it's uh, got got the stuff out. It's like writing a note to your ex girlfriend, you know, and then be able to rip it up and throw it away. But you know, you get it out. Right. And um, well, it gets to the point of thoughts of suicide in the book, which yeah. it, I yeah, imagine no, I, hard I, to read. It must be hard to write. Can you tell me? Yeah, about that? I literally stood up and started walking to the to the balcony of the hotel room, and I just stopped and went, "What the fuck are you doing? You got four kids." Mm. And that stopped me, you know, and. And then I realised, okay, this is this is crazy. And so then I started really, really working on, you know, on healing, healing these wounds. And some of it, you know, some of it is. And I'm a I'm a little bit of a believer in in energies and whatever's passed through generations. And and, uh, and I think there's no doubts that some things come through, you know, your parents and whatever happened to them and generations before. And you know, I think I'm carrying something from past generations because you know I've had a pretty good life but yet you know here I am in a, in a dark place but I think you need to go through these things I really do think you, people need to go through these things to come out the other end and my dad's favorite saying to me it was it was it was um, was basically you know if what doesn't kill you will make you stronger uh, the steel the steel is tempered in the fire he used to say all the time and you know in other words you know you get into that fire and you get yeah, when you come out, you're tougher, you know, and um, you know. So that was you do need to go through these things, and everybody has to has not everybody, but most people have in life. They have these moments where you you know, what am I doing? What what is what is life all about? What's the purpose? Where am I? You know, and I was I was one of those people, but you know, being on the front cover of you know tennis magazine and stuff like that was not an easy place to discuss to to go through this. Um, there wasn't any Beyond Blue back then, you know, and you know, not that I think I think Beyond Blue is really a good a good thing, but there is a serious serious lack of of mental health facilities in Australia. I've been I tried to do a foundation, start a foundation up. Um, John McGorry, the you know, was his Australian of the Year a few years mm. ago. We said, listen, how can we how can we get something going for for mental health people people? Gee, you know, I just we just felt. Black, you know, went in a dead end there, but there is there is serious need for for this sort of stuff, um, and it's certainly in, the, in Britain as well, where I live. Oh my goodness, there's, there's nothing, and people and war heroes, people coming out from war. I mean, they don't do anything. Most half the people who come back from war are on the street in in, the, in Britain, homeless and just can't deal with the stuff. So, and where's the where's the help for them? It's uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting path. Your your way of dealing with with it again you're written about it really openly um 
was substances, which is a typical part. Come on, Howie, just get it out there, mate. Yeah, well, I, like, I, I like to do so. Yeah, I like to have a party and... Yeah, no, it's, I got it's in not there. easy to ask things about that. <laughs> no, you, you look know, like you're a bit nervous well, saying I, that, but no, no, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very open about I, it. I don't want to ask you things that you... Well, no, no. you talk about <laughs> taking coke yeah. um, and it was a big part of your lifestyle there for a while. Yeah, for a short while it was, yeah, absolutely. And that was that was the end of my career and I think... Uh, and is that to deal with the feeling I think it load? was, I think it was, yeah. Uh, I think I wanted a bit of fun. Hey, the tennis career's over, let's go and have fun. You know, I guys? was uncomfortable asking you about that too. <laughs> yeah, I can see you were. Yeah. Uh, that's why I was trying to wind you up a bit there. Uh, no, absolutely, I hadn't, you know, it was, it's not what you might read in the headlines of you, but Pat Cash, I'm supposed to be, I was a cocaine addict for God knows how many years, I don't know what they wrote, you know, but that's just a story. That, that's not the case at all. Um, yeah, I just, it was a scene in London, it was a, a fantastic party scene back then where you know you'd rock up to one of the nightclubs there's a couple of big nightclubs and literally it'd be you know be George Michaels there and you know I've I've talked I've talked about it you know but uh, you know it's kind of fun doing a line with George Michaels in the toilets you know what I mean it's (laughs) and he's passed away now but Bless him. He was an ter- unbelievable guy, a terrific guy. But, you know, that's the sort of scene that it was. Robert De Niro would be there and there'd be, uh, you know, supermodel here and there and you'd turn up and would be, be, you know, chatting away to a, to a movie star, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Oh, hey, mate, how you going? Oh, hey, I'm Pat. Oh, yeah, I know you. Chatting away with Robert Downey Jr. when he was doing uh, his Charlie Chaplin movie. What are you doing in London? Oh, I'm doing this movie, Ch- Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, just every weekend it was like, oh, it was great fun, you know, and everybody was pretty relaxed about it and... Um, What's and you life would, like? you know, you do, you do, you know, have a bit of a night every couple of weekends, and then, then uh, you go back to the family, you know. What, what's life like, Cashy, when you are the king of the world, so to speak? When you're in those circles, and there is so much excess there to tempt you. How, how does a kid growing up in Melbourne that wanted to play tennis deal with whether it be drugs or women or tennis or money or fame? Like it's a lot to throw at someone. Yeah, you know, I don't think I necessarily dealt with it particularly well. I think um, who would though? Yeah, I mean, it was it was, it was exciting. It was fun. Uh, yeah, I wasted a lot of money. Um, you know, uh, but uh, you know, I wasn't. I was always. I was never really crazy. I was never really concerned about money. So probably over generous. I was just just gave money to the kids. Oh, I think so much to the kids, but makes wife and whatever. But um, yeah, I. I never really felt I had a problem, um, though I did go into I did go into rehab not for that but for depression. And my wife went in there first, and uh, we went in there for a family day. And it's it's it was one of that was one of the great eye openers that kind of changed me as well. She went in, she said, "I'm going to go into rehab." I'm like, "Why? You haven't got a problem?" She said, "No, but you know, I'm really de- really don't feel feel good about things." You know, um, she was a bit more sensitive than than I was. I'm like, ah, oh, you're right, just sleep it off, you know, you'll be fine. Oh no, 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 you know, we're doing these drugs a little bit too often. Not that I, I didn't think it was not like a every daily thing by any means. But um so she went into rehab, uh more about depression. We went in there as a family to talk, discuss things and she had, you know, father passed away, you know, all these sort of things, deal with that. And I went in there and went, Whoa, I need to be here. So she checked out, I checked in over New New Year's, uh New Year's two thousand. Family deal. So yeah, almost. Uh, she came out, looked after the kids, and then uh, I was looking after the kids, and we used to swap places, really. I said, I've got to book in. I, I need to learn more about this and why I'm doing the, these things. And yeah, it was one of the best I had Christmas there. Uh, you know, it's Christmas, you know, in, in rehab is not a great 
it's probably not a great place to be. But I also realised, hey, I'm not as screwed up as I think I am. I mean, some of these people, my goodness. And I tell you, without without uh, every single woman that was in there had a problem was was assaulted was assaulted somehow somewhere along the line physically or sexually and had a had a big problem every one of them so there was probably 20 guys 20 girls every one of them we all were share group and and you know and i realized wow how damaging how damaging you want to ruin somebody's life you know this you know rape sexual assault whatever it happened to be just so um that was just like Shocking, um, but also realised going to AA, you know, uh, Al- Alcoholics Anonymous used to go to meetings and 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 they would hold meetings in the centre as well. Narcotics you, Anonymous, Sex you Anonymous. Talk about yourself. Yeah, yeah. You see, you sit down and is that it's kind of weird to say hi. I'm Pat and I'm a I'm a drug addict. I didn't feel right there because I didn't feel like I was a drug addict, but I said it anyway. Hi, I'm Pat. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm Pat. I'm a sex addict. Hi, Pat. I'm a this. But then I quickly realised actually I'm not like these people but I do have something that's going on and, and and how do I learn about this so being the tennis player I am and the determined tennis player whenever there was a workshop going on or something uh, they did they just do all sorts of stuff who wants to get up and discuss things who wants to do who wants to be the first one up I'd have to put my hand up straight away yeah I'll try that I'll go out there yeah, let's get into it let's get it fixed like a tennis backhand yeah let's get it fixed let's go so I just di- dove into everything and healings and all sorts of stuff and it's just like oh my god this is just amazingly powerful and um i had a great time <laughs> you know i had a, i actually you know it's been yeah you know, and i arrived new year's new year's night uh in in melbourne and the fireworks on two, the year 2000 uh but did the australian open and then i went to the very next next week i flew all the way up to paraguay at uh, uruguay to Punta de Lester, and that is the party place in South America where it was nothing started until you know 10, 10 p.m. at night. The tennis matches were starting at about 10 p.m. at night. There was women everywhere, half naked, bikinis, parties, God knows whatever it was. And there I was saying, I'm going to be completely sober, not have a drink, not do anything. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a real good test. If I can get through this, I can get through anything. And then I was on my way. And then since then, it's just been, it's been a great uh, great learning curve and learning about the ego and everything else that goes with it. It's uh, been amazing. Let's move on to happier, positive things, Cashy. Music has been a massive part yeah. of your life. And Love you've got music. to hang out with... Just about every rock star known to man. What is it about music, and, and how are you these days as a guitarist? Oh, I'm pretty. I'm I'm definitely out of practice. Right. Uh, I think I'm slightly better than I used to be, but I'm out of practice. Oh, you know when I sit there and I watch somebody play, and I go, oh, I'm just so crap. I, I'd never be like that. <laughs> it's just depressing. <laughs> uh, pick up the guitar, try a few, learn a few licks, and I'm I'm learning, getting better slowly, but. Yeah, it's kind of. Uh, I, I love my music. I just and and I just love you know, watching guitarists do their things and drummers and everything else. So you're into the heavier type of. I would say I'm into guitar stuff. So okay. I love my blues. I love the blues. That's kind of almost where it started. Beatles. I mean, the my brother's record collection. I was just reminiscing with Juno Roxas. I don't know if you know remember Juno, the band Roxas. He's a good mate of mine. He came to tennis yesterday and 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 watched a very sick Coco run around the court. Um, but supported us there, and, and uh, I say, you know what? My brother had these records when I was a kid. Hard Days Night, Beatles. So that was the first one I got put on, and I got that. I was like, oh, I like this band. 
I didn't understand who this Lou Reed guy, I didn't understand who this Steely Dan was, I didn't understand the, the Rolling Stones, that I did quite intrigued by the Sticky Fingers cover of the album, and then and then the physical graffiti, the Led Zeppelin, I was like, oh, that's a weird cover. As it turned out, it's my favourite album of all time. And that was my and my brother thought, as, yeah, he's pretty cool, he's got some cool records, but it took me about 20 years to realise, and I just, I just liked guitar, you know, I liked the... Grew up ACDC, you know, Rose Tattoo, that sort of stuff. Um, I remember going to the record store and saying, uh, I, heard, uh, I said, you know, have you got any hard rock stuff, hard rock music? And the guy goes, oh, I don't know, ZZ Top, you heard of them? I said, yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, no, no, I haven't heard of them. Okay, get that. And I went back in, looking at the records. I just spent hours there looking at the records. And I flipped through and saw this band in leather. And I thought, that's got to be a heavy metal band. It was Judas Priest, Unleashed in the East album. Right. Today, still today, is my favourite live album of all time. And I said, can you put this on? And he put it on and I went, oh, oh my God. That was it. I was right. sold on heavy metal. You were hooked. Big guitars coming in, screaming. Like, oh my God. Who, what is this? And that was it. That was it. I'm sold. Head was banging, arms were swinging, <laughs> the racket came out, the guitar was on. You know. well, people probably wouldn't realise that um, your famous headband relates back to rock and roll. Yeah, cheap trick. Yeah, that was the that was my first first real band. That was before I sort of got heavy metal. Actually, they I heard this band called Cheap, and they're still t- t- the best concert I've ever seen was Cheap Trick this year. I saw in London, Our best concert I've ever seen. And I saw Led Zeppelin play only a few years ago. It was unbelievable. It's great when you know every single song. The band. You know, and I've got to meet the band, and uh, I tell you, I told them, I said, yes, this is, uh, and I gave them the headband and said, this is, uh, this is where my headband came from. And they kind of look at you, and go, who are you? <laughs> I'm Pat Cash. I won Wimbledon. <laughs> oh, isn't that that tennis tournament? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah, one of them, Robin Zander, the singer, got in tennis. He said, oh yeah, I know a couple of guys. I played a little bit. I played a little bit. But so, what was the connection really. between the headband and Cheap Trick? I just liked, they had, well, the guitarist had checkers everything. He had right. a checkered guitar strap, checkered guitars. Right. So that was his thing. And, of course, I was just studying to get into guitar and learning about it. And, and so that was his thing. And they were my favourite band at the time. And, and so I've always liked the, the black and white checkers. Who have you been on stage with playing your music? Uh, gee, I've been in uh, Ronnie Wood from the Rolling Stones, guys from, I, uh, guys from Iron Maiden, um, Guys from uh, well, guys from Bad Company, Pink Floyd, jeez, uh, a whole bunch of guys who just usually charity <laughs> stuff and just uh, um, we used to do this really good gig. And Vetus Gerolitis, the late late Vetus Gerolitis, was the he was the rock star. He was he used to hang out with Van Halen all the time. Uh, he's passed away now, but it was the rock stars in those days. And you said it was a great era, but it started off my era. Just before that was Bjorn Borg. John McEnroe was a bad boy. Bjorn Borg was the goody, good guy. Couldn't phase him, the Iceman. Jimmy Connors was the wild man. Vetus Gerolitis was the partier. You know, he used to party and play guitar, and he was a good guitarist, a really good guitarist. So it was a great... And if, uh, Guillermo Villas, who won here a couple of times, the Argentinian Latin flan, uh, playboy who used to write poetry and was going out with the princess, one of the princesses of Monaco. You know, that was the sort of... The, the scene that... Uh, that you, that you were in and uh, sounds like a good scene. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Well, I was a bit young, so I was sort of looking at this, going, mm, "That's kind of cool." But uh, Vetus used to put this gig on, which was basically a jam. Like, let's get some of the musos in London before Wimbledon, and we'll have a bit of a get together and play music. Just have a couple of beers, a couple of days before Wimbledon, because after Wimbledon, people at players just leave. So um, 
he put this together and then I sort of took took it over really because I was living in London and Cashy you know you know the guys so we had these unbelievable parties where you know Ian Gillen from Deep Purple was up there you know he'd just come and yeah, you know, get up on and start singing. And I remember getting up and playing one day. I was at the Hard Rock, always at the Hard Rock Cafe, because that was Vetus's home away from home in those days. And getting up and playing a song, and this guy in a cowboy hat came up and he said, he said, hey man, can I take your guitar? I'm so and so from the Allman Brothers. And I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah, you can definitely have my guitar, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know. And then somebody else would jump up and play, and uh, yeah, wow. so it was. It was good fun, and um, but you know tennis sort of got a bit. Problem is, it was too much fun, and most of the guys had hangovers the day before Wimbledon, so it died out after a couple of years. J- Jimmy Barnes got up and played one year. He got up and played. Um, what's the song they played? He played with In Excess. Blank now. Ah, uh, um, Mary, Mary. Yeah, the one from Lost mind. Boys. Do, 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 do. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, he got up. Uh, that was a pretty easy song to play. We have so. a party tonight or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. Like oh, that. What is it? Pretty yeah. apt. Uh, you mentioned yeah. um, you mentioned about going out with the princess. The other thing that I nearly fell off my chair when I was reading your book was you were just describing how you were playing tennis with Princess Diana. Yeah, yeah, that was that was an amazing situation. Well, I got. <laughs> I would have thought so. Yeah. Well, she was there when I won Wimbledon, um, and uh, so she saw it. But then she and I and I broke my Achilles after that, and I did a charity event. For her, I played tennis. I can't remember who it was against. I think it was against Boris, but I'm not sure. Uh, and afterwards, uh, you know, she presented, you know, a little thank you to us. All came, we came, shook her hand, and, and that sort of stuff. And and um, it, was, it was kind of funny because all the players came up, and the officials came up, and she said hello, just you know, five, ten seconds. And I, and I came up, and she sort of grabbed my hand and held my hand and said, you know. How's your injury? How's your Achilles? How's you going? I was there that day. I said, oh, of course I know. I know you were there that day. And we started chatting. I said, oh, look, it's, you know, it's getting, it's okay. I'm struggling with the strength, blah, blah, blah. We're chatting away and blah, blah, blah. And she said, oh, yeah, I like playing tennis. And all of a sudden the crowd started going, ooh, giving this, this. (laughs) And we just sort of looked and walked away. It's like, how rude. You know, we're just having a chat about stuff. And then so many years later, a few years later, that uh, she was playing at the tennis, she was a member of the Harbour Club. And, Sounds um, exclusive. It's not really. Mm. Uh, it's not really, but it's a nice club. And but uh, so she was a member there. She was set divorced and all that sort of stuff by then. She's going out with six stars. I'd going out dirty uh, at that mm. stage. And uh, so I went and played tennis. Played tennis with her. She's a social player. It was great. We sat down for an hour and had to talk about all sorts of stuff. And she was very open. You know, I said, oh look, and I knew she'd done some work with a guy I call my guru from the Malaysian Australian called Dr. Yong Lim, and he's the guy who maybe taught me more about everything, life and life and death and everything in between. Um, and I know she'd done some work with him. He'd mentioned it to her. And uh, so I mentioned it. She said, oh, well, I can't really talk talk about visit people like that because they don't let me. You know, And it was very clear that she was trying to break out, but she couldn't really do what she wanted to do. And uh, huh. uh, so it was, it was really interesting a really interesting conversation and then you know it's only months later that she died yeah but I could see she I don't know it's right to say that that I, you know she was she was trapped but you know and in some ways I sort of felt like she was released from all that pressure when she died um, it was as sad as it was yeah yeah it's one of those things that everyone sort of our generation remembers Na- nowadays you've uh, you got four kids Four kids, yeah. Your yeah. grandfather? Your grandfather, three times now. Right. For the third time, just the other week. 
So little me, Marley. Tell me about kids and being a grandfather and being a parent. Isn't that a challenge? Oh, <laughs> the, the biggest. The best, but the biggest. It is. Uh, you know what? By look, far the best, though. I look back, I've got a 31-year-old son, and I got a, who's just got, ma- got married last year, beautiful Oh, beautiful boy. What a, what a great kid he is. He's the one I was holding the, with the Wimbledon trophy with. And, <laughs> and uh, he's just got married. He's just so special. Um, a daughter who's just had the third baby. Um, just, uh, just another amazing, amazing woman. Works with child, handicapped children and uh, a passion for working with children with um, autism. Um, and, uh, and then I've got my twin boys uh, with, my, with my, it was my wife. Uh, chalk and cheese. One is... Up, you know, wanted to be a tennis player or wanted to be, you know, very motivated. It was up at five o'clock to go for a run before he got on the bus and then went to the training and then came back and he did his homework and then he did this and he did that. And, you know, how are you going, Jet? His name's Jet. Yeah, how are you going? Yeah, yeah, good. Oh, what's happening? Oh, not much. Uh, you know, what about the girlfriend? Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, I'm studying. Oh, I'm studying. I've got A's and i got this and doing that. I'm, you know, he did sports psychology. He did psychology and got... Got just just graduated, and then you got the other twin, who's not got very good eyesight. Doesn't really play play sport though. He can play play all right. And say, so, hey Shannon, how's it going? You got 15 minutes later. You know, he's still telling you about how he feels about life and Isn't that bizarre his music. When they're, and when they're twins <laughs> and they come from the same place, it's like they, should, they shouldn't be brothers. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. But they're just so amazing. It's so beautiful. And uh, you know, I've just got a great relationship with them, all of them. Um, it just—it's yeah, it is absolutely fantastic. And I don't know, whatever I screw up in in life or whatever mistakes I've done, I tell you what, I've done a good job there, or their mothers have done a good job. Well, that's the most important but, job. Uh, it is. It is absolutely the most important job. And I don't know where it went. I just don't know where it went. The twins are twenty-three now. You know, my son's thirty-one. Uh, where did it go? And I just—I have to read back in the book to see what happened. You know, it's just like it's gone in a flash. Yeah, but you know, I'm always there. You know, trying to communicate with them, playing pool on the on the mobile phone with my son across in London, just just before I came down here. Funny way to communicating with your kids, but you know, he's off uh, traveling South America. Just graduated, does Spanish, and you know, my other you know, the other one, the twin is. You're uh, not sure what he wants to do in life, and I'm supporting that. You know, he does part time. At a juice bar in in Austin, Texas, and does a does a course, and at, at university, and I'm happy about that, you know. And you know, I say anything you ever need, you call me. You know, that's, and I think that's what the parents. I I believe my parent job as a parent is to raise your children so they can have their own healthy and wonderful life, and and uh, you know, and then be there for them if something goes wrong, which it will, and support them. So. Uh, I always tell them that, you know, if you need anything, let me know. And it usually is. Dad, can you pay rent this month? <laughs> uh, Dad, I need some money. You know, yeah, no problems. You know, hey, what's going on? You know, I'm not paying rent the whole year, you know. But I said I'll support them through their school um, so they don't come out of college, university with any debt. And I think – and then they're on their own, really. You've probably had more cause for introspection of their own life than, than most people, I reckon, as a, mm. as a general rule. So you – probably more equipped to answer this than most people and I said to you at the start this podcast is about inspiring and motivation by through in, through telling stories of success what do you reckon is the general key to being successful um being happy I think was his first one I mean, you, you need to have a 
What's the definition of successful? Well, that was the next yeah, question. That was it? my next question. That's interesting. And we, we just talked about being the most important thing, being raising parents. Yep. Now, for me, success, yeah, Roger Federer winning 18 Grand Slams, Pete Sampras winning you know, seven Wimbledons or whatever he's won, eight. Yeah, that's great. Uh, is that better than, I don't know. I mean, you know, is that, is that, is that better than a single mum you know, on welfare or not getting any money from the dirtbag husband, ex-husband, raising three kids and getting them through into university. Oh my God, no! Mm. That is that is that is hats off to you, lady. You know, whatever. That is um, they're the real true, true champions. So they get rewarded, no? Then they get prize money, no? <laughs> but that is that is uh, you know they need that is that is a, that's a, that's a, that's the thing that's just impressed me more than anything. Um, well, well, what, all, yeah. well, you, you sort of said, well, to be successful is happiness. Are you happy now? I'm very happy. Yeah, you know, I spend a lot of time working on that, and I think it's, I think uh, meditation has been a, a huge, huge thing for me. I'm constantly trying to get better, but I think also learning a lot of different techniques on how to deal with things. I think you, you learn different te- techniques, but meditation has been huge for me. Um, uh, the ego, trying to strip away the ego, really is is uh, is so important. Uh, a book that I I follow is A Course in Miracles. I don't know if A Course some, in Miracles. Some, some, it's it's look, it's channeled by whatever you want to think. It's basically a, a lady is, was 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 uh, ch- channeling words from Jesus Christ. Believe what you want to believe. I believe it's it's true. When you read the book, you realise, wow. And it's it's not it's not Christian at all. In actual fact, it's probably more Buddhist than than it is than huh. Christian, because it doesn't believe in religion uh, necessarily. So, and it has daily lessons, and it's it's just absolutely inspiring. So, the daily lessons I do, it's a yearbook, uh, and it's word, it's a book, a workbook as well. You know, I've been through it. It's my fourth year. I think I've gone through it now, and um, and it's just a very, very inspiring book. Um, and there's some great teachers out there. Marianne Williamson, I think, is a fantastic teacher. Uh, Gary Renard is an expert on, on the Course in Miracles. He's a fantastic, um, unbelievable teacher. You know, I like to learn from these things, but you also got to experience to, and you got to put, you got to, you got to do your do your work. And the most important thing, most important thing, if I say one bit of advice, is forgiveness forgive yourself forgive others and that there's no wrong and no right i think that is the number one thing that i that started me on this path to realize there is no wrong and no right what i believe and what my neighbor believes is different and if you mm. can say okay well there's no wrong and no right you can say okay killing somebody is okay well maybe pushing it but in general have just take it with a, a pinch of salt that everybody's got an opinion and there's Maybe no wrong and no right. I mean, you know, we're, we're near Australia Day, and I've been all of a sudden I've been lumped into this Australia Day debate because yeah. because I'm passionate about what's happening with the, the the horrendous treatment that the Aboriginals are still dealing with um, the Native Australians, Native Australians. Did I say that? First Australians, um, Indigenous Australians, uh, I should say, um, and. It's, I said I'm not going to celebrate Australia Day and now it's all about, well, you know, are we going to celebrate Australia Day? I, you know, I can't do it because I, I, I've seen what I've seen. It's not about Australia, damn day, what day it is. I mean, it's rubbing salt in the wounds of, the, of, of, of Indigenous Australians that put it on at, uh, January 26 when the first fleet landed. It really is. I mean, that's really, I think, incredibly disrespectful. 
But it's not really about a day. It's about, what I'm saying, is about the treatment of these people that are living in Australia, the first Australians, and the way they're living. This would be... If, if anybody was living in the suburb of Coburg here mm. or Paran were treated like that, mm. it'd be all over the front news. Mm. They'd be outside the suburb newspapers. They'd be going to the, 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 the councillor. They'd be going to the minister. What's going on here? They're living in the street. They're living in a caravan. You've turned the water off. They've got no electricity. It's boiling hot. Why come these, you know, how come they, they, you know, they're being kicked out of school? All this sort of stuff. But up there, it's like, oh, no, let's just forget about it. No, that's not happening. Uh, and I think it is happening, but I think people are too scared to talk about it. And maybe I've shaken it up and I'm getting a bit of compliments. I'm getting a bit of abuse. I'm getting to shut your mouth. Who do you think you are? And it's like, okay, mate, I'm just saying what I've seen. And I think people should see it before they make a decision about Australia Day. And like you said two minutes ago, everyone's got the, their the, own the, Not opinion. Australia Day, but sorry, the 26th of January. Uh, Australia Day we should celebrate for sure. And it causes debate, I know, for the first time. Maybe four years ago I was down in Tassie and it was an area where some uh, ships landed and it was talking it was the first time I'd read it and it was a tourist plaque and it was talking about this is the day when Tasmania was invaded mm. and the word hit me and I was mm. like yeah because <laughs> it's not what I learnt at school no it's right. but it's, all of a sudden that very word true. made sense to me it's not what you learn at school yeah. Um, yeah, life true. life um, I'll get out of your hair you've lived which I love You've lived a life, for want of a better term, Cashy, outside the lines. As in, you've you haven't been an establishment man at no, all. I don't I'm reckon not, in your whole life. I'm not an establishment no. guy. So, no. is it worth the extra angst that you get in a professional life, in a personal life, whatever part of your life, to to be outside the lines? If you know what I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I do wonder that. I do yeah. wonder that. I think, well, you know, if I just toe the line a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'll get invited to be part of the Davis Cup or, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I'm me. I'm me. You know, I think I've got to speak genuinely from, from my heart and what I truly believe. And, and I do, you know, I think this, I think I, I, I do look at myself in the mirror a lot and go, you know, are you doing this because cause your ego's getting out and you, you, you know, you think you've, you need to say something or you actually genuinely believe this is as something that should be should be done and and sometimes i i cross that line and and uh i go oh you know what was that all about and i do i go what was that all about oh, gee man you know calm down you're just upset because you didn't get a ticket to the tennis or something you know and i do get upset because i don't get invited to the tennis you know don't get i get one invited one seat to the to the Australian Open once a year to sit there as long as I sit with everybody, all the officials and, and the sponsors and, and really? be, be a good boy. Yeah, I get one, I get two seats. For one, a two-time one... Davis Cup winner and a man that's played in his own Don't start twice. me off again, Howie. Right. <laughs> well, that's shit. That's shit, Cashy. Well, I think it is. I think it is. But anyway, but, and, it's and, not and about that, me. It's that's not... because of living outside the lines, though? Um, I just don't think they treat tennis players very well. A lot of ex-Davis Cup players don't get invited back. That's I great. mean, they spoke. Yeah, that, it is is really really bad. I mean, if you're an ex-football player, play for the club, you'd, you'd have you'd have tickets. You know, can I have a couple of tickets? Yeah, yeah, every weekend. What do you want? You know, yeah, you, every home game you got a ticket. Here's a free membership. You know, and away games, no problems. Right. You, you come back to Australia, you get one, two seats for one 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 night session as long as you go to the dinner with them and do all that sort of stuff. And mm. that's just ridiculous. I get extra tickets because I, because I play and now because I, because I coach not actually tickets extra pass and I do get a couple of tickets and they're very generous in, in that respect but if I wasn't I would get nothing um, so but anyway 
so I got to I got to check in with myself all, all the time and say, yeah, you know, you're going too far here or you're not. But you know, some things, and I don't know what it is, but you know, seeing you know the Aboriginal community and hearing these people and sitting hours and hours and hours and talking about to them to these elders, these people who, who's, who, whose knowledge is dying out, who are just so passionate. All they want is a house that they can live with their kids, you know, and, and put them in a school where they actually speak the same language and that they don't get thrown out because they don't know English and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, with 200, la- uh, 200 different languages in Australia, how are you going to lump all the same, you know, Indigenous Australians together and say, you know, oh, you, off you go? It's... So I, I, I'm not sure where this is coming from, but mm. I'm just absolutely destroyed. It actually makes me shake when I do some interviews. I'm shaking afterwards going, oh, my God, can people see what's going on here? And it's like, I can see it's getting you wound up now, mate. It's just really fucking wrong. It is. But I, I guess the majority of Australians don't see it cashy and you've had the pleasure and pain of seeing it up close yeah maybe that's what it is I don't know but it's just really wrong and I, I just feel compelled to tell people it's wrong and maybe something will happen I don't know but um, maybe I'm overstepping my, my mark and you know, I've talked to the charity Children's Ground who do all this great work up there and I've had letters from some great emails the last few days about from some of the elders and saying, you know, keep going. And I said, well, I don't know if it's my duty to keep going, but hopefully something can be done. You know, it's just really terrible. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. Um, I think that's... I think the essence of what you've just told me and your reaction it's had on you, Cashy, is why Australians always loved you, because we talked about passion earlier on. Um, I'm going to make it easy for you now. I'm going to put a smile on your face. Um, you dealt with a question from the big penguin. <laughs> now you are getting the pickle, my eight-year-old, who All right, looked, this will be on, a tough one. looked on YouTube, watched you winning Wimbledon and a few other things, and was watching the tennis last night when she sent me this because I was in Hobart. Hi, Pat Pickle here. I love Nick Kyrgios's haircut with the lines through the side of it. It's super cool. Did you have a cool haircut like that when you won Wimbledon? <laughs> Um, <laughs> what generation? Which generation is it? Yeah, it was cool then. It was sort of the mullet style. <laughs> it was the mullet. Yeah, it was a bit. It was the rock and roll. You see, it was a rock and roll spiked sort of rock and thing. But, but um, the practical out of my face. Uh, but the rock and roll in the back. So, um, pickle. I'm not sure if it was very cool or not. But it was um, in retrospect. But it was it was kind of cool back then for a, for a brief moment. And let's face it, the 80s were. Uh, an era where we were experimenting, really, weren't we? Everything was changing. Hair you know, was big. Hair, hair was important. Hair was, well, hair was everything. You'd have the, that, and then you'd have the, you'd have the uh, that big hair, hair, uh, you know, uh, hard rock sort of yeah, looking thing that went on for a while. There was uh, ex- different different technology was coming out. Different rackets were trying strings. It was, you know, it was uh, short shorts were were still in, but then they weren't. Uh, grunge <laughs> was in. You know, it was. Well, I suppose that was the 90s then. Those but, short uh, shorts, the old Sergio Tachinis, where you used to stick your balls down in your pocket and yeah. all that. Hey, mate, I'll, I'll let you go. Just yeah. just one thing to finish with. Um, I'll preface this by saying I defended Lance Armstrong 
on the radio the morning he went on Oprah and then he went on Oprah and I was like, uh, yep. I shouldn't have been defending this bloke. <laughs> um, I, I've, I find myself defending, especially Kyrgios and at times Tommy because I love entertainment in my sport. Mm. But personally, that's what I love. If I'm going to watch one match during the Australian Open, I want to watch Nick Kyrgios yeah, because don't he, blame you. he's an entertainer and I think that's what we need in sport. Yep. Comes back to our conversation right at the start. Where do you sit on this much-talked-about debate about... Part of me, part of me, Cashy, feels that they're individuals and they can do what they want when they want. I, yeah. I, I sat on the couch the other night with Bernie walking off talking about his 14 million and I don't take life too seriously. It made me laugh. I was like, oh, well, fair enough. Yeah, he's made lots of money, so good luck to the kid. Yeah. I, I'm in a minority. Yeah. I understand I'm in oh, a minority. I, I did the same thing, actually. I, I did exactly the same as you. I kind of laughed. I went, oh, yeah, well, you know, good for him, but... Yeah, I don't know. Is it a waste of talent or is it... Oh, his is a waste of talent, no doubts. Right. Oh, Bernie, absolute waste of talent. But you know what? He's, he's As far as shot hitting, he's, he's extraordinary. He's not the best athlete in the world. So he's going to struggle to get the top ten and stay there. He's just he's slow. But he, he covers the court well and he should be top ten player in the world. But he's, he's never going to be number one. He's never going to win eight grand slams like his dad said. And he's just had a weird... I mean, I was hearing Yelena Dockage talk the other day, or well, today, uh, the Fed Cup uh, charity fundraiser. Boy, she had a life. Uh, you yeah. know, Bernie's not far behind that, I've got to be really honest. And I think people who know tennis will, will, will recognise that, and he's, it's affected him. And I think it's... You know, say so affected his judgement? Affected his judgement in fact that it's not what you would think people would say and not make sensible decisions and choices and, and words and, and whatever. So I see that. Again, uh, I just go back to, you know, you know I forgive the kid. You know, if, I mean, he's done me no harm. I and mean, we've had a bit of a spat. He had a, a bit of a crazy old, old thing. Uh, he gave me a real telling down um, la- in, last year. In uh, personal he, or the media? Yeah, no, in person. In person. He just, he did, he just unleashed on me. And what happened? But, well, he misread something in the newspaper. Right. He came out the next day and said to the tournament organiser, said, oh, can you apologise to Pat? I misread what he said. Because I was looking at him going, what are you talking about? If you think you're this and that. And he, was giving, he, was, he was laying me into me. And I'm just sitting there going, well, standing there looking at him because he's about six, about six inches taller than me. Yeah. Going, what are you talking about? And then my blood started boiling and I'm going to go, if you say one more word, I am going to punch you in the fucking head. <laughs> <laughs> and and then that's when my and I just and that was, that's all the lessons I've learned. I just took a deep breath and went. It's just just bruising my ego here for a second. Twenty uh, years of training took over. Yeah, and then I went. Okay, okay, this is not making much sense. I don't know what he's talking about. Anyway, and then he was fine. <laughs> that was fine. I actually interviewed him afterwards, and he came back. Out and anyway, so uh, you know, he's a strange kid, but I, I uh, you know, I don't, I don't I don't mind him, but it's you know. If, he, if, if it's about money, if he wants money, hey, listen, there's plenty of people out here making businesses who are doing it for a living to make money, to make, you know, have some little nice house and uh, buy a beautiful car and all that sort of stuff. No problems with that, you know? But if you said, you know, if they said, oh, listen, hi, everybody, I, you know, I'm, I'm building this chain of food or whatever it happens to be, chain of shops. Um, I, all I'm in this is just to make a lot of money and so I can build a house and have a boat and I can go on holiday every five minutes. Uh, you know, I want you guys to build that, that money for me. Everybody turn around and go, I quit, I quit, I quit, I quit. 
if they said it out loud. But he said it out loud and he said, well, I'm my boss and I'm, yeah. I'm doing the thing. So, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's, if that's, if it's, his motivation is to make money, then cool. And Nick on the other side, I think he's, again, he's just a different character. Um, at times I find him really disrespectful to a lot of people, including myself. Uh, again, is it my ego? And I sit there and go, you know what? If Nick doesn't like me or he, or he just grunts him as he walks past me or doesn't give me a proper handshake, then so what? What do mm. I care? Do I really give a rat's ass about Nick Kyrgios? No. Is he a good player? Hell yeah. He's a heck of a player. Is he exciting to watch? Yeah, he is. Is he going to win a Grand Slam? Possibly in this era that's coming up when some of the other guys are gone. He could do. And, you know, what will I say about that? Well, if he plays well, I'll say he played well. If he played shit, I'll say he played shit. Mm. And, if, you know, and if I see him, I'll see him, I'll congratulate him. Hey, mate, well done. That's enough. Walk off. You know, you come a long way since I saw you as a kid hitting a few balls with you, you know. And, and that's the way it is. You know, is he, is he strange? Is he this? Is he that? Has he done some wrong things on the court? Well, yeah, probably has in my opinion. But um, as you said... And, and you said it, and, and one of my best mates from uh, America says the same thing. He says, when Nick Kyrgios comes on the TV, I'm not turning off. Exactly right. You know? And uh, is that bad for tennis? Uh, no, it's absolutely not bad for tennis. Is it bad for tennis when he, throw, when he tanks and he walks off the court and mm. he's swearing at the opponent and he's swearing at everybody else? Yeah, that is bad for tennis. But you're going to turn the TV off? <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> so he's, you know, that's the, way, that's the way it is. Sport is an entertainment business these days. Is it? Yeah, that's the thing. That, and that's always, that's always a thing that I always well, jostle it, with. There's I think competition out there for as, it. You, as, can, yeah. you can go to the movies or you can go to the beach or you can be entertained by watching your sport. Finally, Cashy, um, and you've been so great with your time. I know a lot of kids listen to this podcast, which is really, really cool, and a lot of them are on the way to training. Ooh, tennis. sorry about swearing, so, No, nah, mate, <laughs> have a listen to Luke Longley's episode. You'll be, you'll be fine. You'll be seriously fine. Um, for, for any young kid out there that wants to achieve something in sport, and this could be something you could answer over three hours, but yeah. to answer it in okay. 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm a youngster, I'm on the way to training, and I want to do well at my sport. What, what's the one thing that I need to remember, do you think? You gotta work hard. There's no getting away around that. You gotta work harder than you ever thought you had, you could. You had to work to be successful, uh, to be really successful. If you got a lot of talent, you can sort of skip skim some of those a little bit around the edges. Um, don't get sucked into goals long term. I think you can have a big goal. Yeah, I want to you know play in a Premiership team, or I want to be in the Australian cricket team, or whatever netball team, whatever it is. Okay, that's that's great. But assess your goals all the time. Don't don't let results be your main focus. Don't let results be your main focus. Be your focus to be better, to be the best you can be and work. And that is tireless and that will get you somewhere. Yeah, goals are a little bit overrated in my opinion. You've got to, uh, you've got to take a pinch of sock because anything can happen. Oh, I didn't achieve my goal. But wait a minute, you were sick for six weeks or whatever. You know, so um, yeah. Is that good enough? It's, it's brilliant, <laughs> mate. It's fantastic. And I've actually been looking forward to it since you first emailed me back through Killer Kale, gave me your details. Mate, um, fantastic talking to you. Yeah. Uh, it's been um, everything I hoped and more. And your honesty, mate, and you growing up, you were the rebel that everyone wanted to be. So I'm glad that you're still living outside the lines and having a crack, mate. All right. Well, thanks. I don't intend to do that, but <laughs> I think it's just the way I am. Good on you, Cashy. <laughs> thanks, Howie. Pat Cash. The man has lived a life and a half. Thanks to Pat for being Pat. Yeah, for being Pat and continuing to fight for what he believes in. What a star. To you all, thanks as always for listening to the show. 
please tap someone on the shoulder this week and say, hey, have you heard of the Howie Games? This is how you listen to it. That'd be great. Thanks to MJ, who was in fine, fine form at the wedding, it must be said. Did very well, the kid. Thanks as always, mate. And until next Thursday, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.